Let's pray. Lord, your word is awesome. It's life-changing and life-giving, life-creating. It can totally change a, a man from the inside out. It can change our perspective. It can revolutionize a church. It can, can cause a man to be born again who was hostile and angry to you and against you his entire life. It has all power. Um, the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit and a joint and marrow discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart and so i pray that your word would do just that this morning and that we would humbly sit before it to be instructed by it and that it would lead to worship of the son of god and that you would be well pleased with that worship so help me as a preacher and help us as listeners of in the church to just hear your word with respect and reverence and and with with hunger. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this passage in Matthew 17, we have three portraits of Jesus that are beautifully painted, um, de- depicting his who he is really, the, the King in all of his beauty. And we see in the first verses one through thirteen the glory of the Son of God and. The next section, verses 14 through 23, we see the power of the Son of God. And then in that last section that Grant just read for us, we see really kind of two things. The humility of Jesus and the provision of Jesus. He provides uh, the temple tax, the drachma tax, as it says, the temple tax, which was a tax given um, by the Jews of the day in order to keep the upkeep of the temple. And we also see the humility of Jesus in that Jesus declares... Uh, in Matthew, that he is greater than the temple. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the new place of worship. And yet, he still encourages his disciples to pay the temple tax, even though he has replaced the temple. So it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. Now, I'm not going to preach that last section. Uh, I'll, I'll give that to you to just kind of read and meditate through. That's the point of that last section. I'm going to spend my, my time this morning on the first two sections, the glory of the Son of God and the power of of the Son of God. Jonathan Edwards labored in his preaching uh, to put the glory of Christ on display in the gospel because he believed that seeing God in the face of Jesus Christ is our highest good as men and women. In his sermon, The Excellency of Christ, which I encourage you to read, it's one of the most compelling sermons you'll ever read called The Excellency of Christ. Jonathan Edwards says the following. He says, The enjoyment of Christ is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers or mothers, husbands, wives or children, or the company of any and all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Edwards understood that he understood the end for which we were made, the end for which we were created, the ultimate purpose of our life. To spend in this life and in the life to come knowing and enjoying more fully the infinite riches of Jesus. And this morning we're called into that same enjoyment. In that we are going to look at this amazing passage where we have the transfiguration of Jesus. Whereas Jonathan said while he was leading worship that Jesus is going to declare uh, to the disciples for the first time. He's going to show them his divine nature. His glory like they have never seen before. And we are invited as a church into that reception to see that, to witness that. And so my prayer, my burden is that we will behold uh, the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ this morning. And be affected, freshly affected by that. In this first section, we have this one of these most exhilarating, worship-provoking portraits of Jesus in the Bible. So what you have is Peter, James, and John... Go with Jesus to the top of a mountain where Jesus gives them 
a manifestation of his divine nature. The transfiguration is where the veil that had hidden and concealed the glory of his deity behind his humanity was just for a moment was lifted. It was lifted. And the disciples experienced this transformation. The Greek word there is metamorpho. It is where we get the word metamorphosis. And the disciples experienced this, this transformation, this metamorphosis, this this transfiguration, as it's called, where suddenly the majesty and the glory of his deity burst through his humanity for just a moment, just a moment. And we're told that when that happened, that the face of Jesus shone like a sun, like the sun. And when you hear about his face shining with that kind of magnitude and intensity, I mean, you can't help but think if you are at all familiar with the Bible, you can't help but think about Moses uh, when when he went up to the mountain, his own mountain, and he asked, he said, God, show me your what? Your glory. Show me your glory. And God denied him that. God said, no, if, if I show you my glory, you'll die. You can't survive. And he says, the only thing I'll let you see is the back portion of me. And when Moses caught a glimpse of the back of God's glory, Moses was transformed. Just the back of his glory. His face was filled, we're we're told in Exodus, with a transcendent radiance. So that when he came down from the mountain, he actually had to cover his face in front of the people. So this is after he is no longer in that radiant, transcendent presence of Jesus. He is now down off the mountain and he has to cover his face because his face is still shining. Now, here's the thing I want you to get a hold of. There's a significant difference between what Moses saw and what the disciples saw. With with Moses, the light that filled his face was a glory that was reflected. When, when, When Moses is down off the mountain, away from that presence... His face is still shining, but that's a reflection of something. It was a shadow. It was a reflection of the glory of God bouncing off his skin. But here, with the disciples, the light that shines as bright as the sun is not a reflection. It is not coming from an external source. And it's it's not reflected on his face. No, the source of the light on the face of Jesus is coming from within. It's coming from Jesus himself. This is the Jesus that we read about in 1 Timothy 6 that says who he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, and notice this phrase, who dwells in inapproachable light. That's this Jesus. Jesus is the radiance, we're told in Hebrews, of God's glory. He is the exact Exact expression of his nature. Think about that. When when God manifests himself in scripture, he does so through the glory of Jesus Christ that lights up this world. And so John says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his, here's the word, glory and the glory as the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact expression of God. And here, Jesus is giving three men a manifestation for a moment of that glory. And when Peter, this is what's so alarming to me as I read this text, as we go studying this, and one thing just hit me so hard. And I'm going to spend some time applying this to our church, because here's the thing, that when these three men see this manifestation of glory, Peter sees Moses and Elijah... He gets so excited that he can hardly contain himself. But but his response, I want you to notice, is not appropriate. I, I don't think his response is appropriate. Moses' response is this. I mean, sorry, not Moses, Peter. Peter's response is this. Peter says, says this is great, Lord. I, I think that's a way, sort of Peter's way of saying, this is cool. Wow, look at this. There's Moses, and there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. And they're conversing and they're talking about the exodus and, and, and Jesus' own exodus in, in just a few days. This is cool. And then he says this. You can tell he's a little cavalier here in that he does not understand what's going on. 
that he says, he says to Jesus, hey, I got an idea. How about this? This is fantastic. I really, really like this place. So how about we skip the whole Jerusalem thing? And how about we just stay up here on the mountain and, and, and I'll make three tents. Uh, I'll, I'll make one for Moses. I'll make one for uh, Elijah and then I'll make one for you, Jesus. And we can just hang out up here and, and we can take all this in and 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 we'll be on a spiritual high and, and we can just enjoy this. And while he's still talking, the text says, I mean, he's way out over his skis. He while he's still talking, he has no idea what's going on. There's a bright cloud, verse five of the Shekinah glory that overwhelms him, and out of that cloud comes a voice, and the voice says, This, this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then this command, listen to him, listen to him. Have you ever been cavalier in a moment, and then somebody says, listen, listen, and you realize, wow, that was kind of jolting. What was I supposed to listen to? And there's like a disrespect And it seems that one of the things that's disrespectful about this is that Peter's like, I'll make a tent for Moses. I'll make a tent for Elijah. I'll make one for Jesus. Like these guys are on par. Well, that's kind of crazy. A tent for Moses. What? I mean, a tent is a, is a tabernacle. That's where we go to worship. I'll make a little, little spot for Moses, a little spot for Elijah, and, and a little spot for you too, Jesus. And the voice, of God thunders out of this cloud of glory and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's why I said Peter is, he's out to lunch. He's, he's over his skis. And the demeanor of the disciples changes completely. In fact, we read in verse 6 that they fall on their faces and are terrified. Why is that? Why are they terrified? And it's, the answer is quite simple. Because, think about it, they are in the presence of now unveiled deity. It's not hidden anymore. It's unveiled. This, this is a striking moment. No wonder they're terrified. And that's what God does. He strikes terror into the hearts of all those who would approach him. He is holy, 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 as Isaiah says. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, if you ask most Christians to define holiness, right? So we have a little quiz here, text in your answer. What's holiness? And it comes up on the screen. Most of the definitions that come in on the screen right now, if we did this, would be something along the lines of purity. And that would be correct. That holiness has something to do with purity, And that's true, but it's a secondary meaning. It's not the primary meaning. The primary meaning of holiness in Scripture is separation. It's otherness. It's transcendence. The holiness of God refers to the way in which he is different than anything else in the universe. If you want to read more about this, I recommend R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. It will change your attitude and perspective about the holiness of God. God is the most valuable reality in the universe. All other realities are dust in the scales compared to the value of himself. He is exalted, pure being that none of us can compare ourselves with. He is the ultimate other. And his otherness that's being demonstrated here at the transfiguration, that's what we're seeing here. A German scholar named uh, Rudolf Otto wrote a book under the German title Das Heilige, uh, or the Holy. And in that book, he talks about what he calls the Mysterium Tremendum. And that is what he calls coming so near to God's transcendent holiness that it causes one to tremble. The The mystery is so profound. The holiness is so great that one trembles. Have you ever been in a moment or a time of private prayer where the moment is so palpable and so felt that the holiness of God is so expressed and you feel that at such an express level that you tremble. That you, you literally, you, 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 you tremble. There's a warmth there because you know you're a son, but there's also a fear there because you know how great he is. Look, we should have moments in our life where we feel, we feel that. 
right? If God is who God says he is, our attitude should not be cavalier, mostly. Mostly. Our attitude should be one of great respect, mostly. And, and yes, the respect of a son, but it should be there. There should be an attitude there. There should be, a, you should have flavors in your prayer life, flavors in your worship, flavors in your home, flavors in the church of God's transcendence, God's greatness. You should be feeling that. One of the most common phobias, if you look at the, like the top 10, 15 phobias, one of the most common phobias that people suffer with is xenophobia. Right? Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. It comes from the Greek word xenos or strangers. So xenophobia is a fear of, of someone else. It's a fear of the other. So blacks are afraid of whites. Whites are afraid of blacks. Black communities and white communities and, and, and Mexican communities and, and Asian communities and people are afraid of one another and there's this, there's this, there's this xenophobia. And, 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 and the disciples here, I think, feel the ultimate xenophobia. Alright? They, they experience here the presence of the unveiled God. And their conclusion is, what manner of man is this? What kind of being is this? And they fall on their faces in fear as they experience the holiness of God. You know, one of the, one of the great joys of, of my life, one of the highest experiences is when I am gathered with God's people, whether at this church or another worship gathering, and I'm standing on, on the front row and the singing of God's people begins to sort of fill the room and overwhelm me, come over my head, around my ears, and I just take in that moment of, of God inhabiting the praises of his people and filling his people with praise. And while they're praising him, just overwhelmed in that moment, God does so much in my heart through worship and singing, through worship in, in, uh, while, while, while the, a worship team is playing. God is working in my heart. I don't know about what your experience, but I mean, so much work gets done in my heart during that time. Sometimes more than the sermon. I'm sitting there and I'm just flattened, man. I'm just out. I'm just, I'm hurting for something like I, I feel um, a weight of glory. I feel a conviction of sin. I feel affection rising up in my heart for Jesus. I feel uh, a need for more of God. I feel hunger for him. Sometimes I feel coldness and therefore I feel ashamed and I feel guilty. And, and while I'm sitting there, God's just working. He's just working in my heart. He's working in my, on my marriage. He's working on my parenting. God, God's doing stuff. I'm not just standing there like, let's go through the next song. Let's sing the next song. No, God is moving. This is a powerful, powerful thing. It's some, it's some of the most hope-filled uh, times for me. So, and it's also some of the times that I'm most cognizant of my sin. There's this vertical and horizontal thing going on. It's like the Lord's Supper. There's this vertical love for Jesus, but then there's this horizontal, horizontal affection for my, for the body of Christ, for my fellow believers, for my, my wife and my kids and, and, the, and the church. And so there's vertical and there's horizontal. But when we gather as a church, there should be a sense of glory and a weight in here. A certain weight and gravity and that sense of glory should flow, hear me, from a sense of sonship. Right? So, so that we're not going back to Sinai, right? Because we're not slaves, but we're sons. And that sonship, that adoption motif should be provoking in us not a cavalier attitude, but a deep attitude of respect. That's what it should be producing in us. There's a mix of gravity and gladness, as Piper likes to say, of joy and reverence. Now, I, I've been at I've been at Heritage Baptist Church for 36 years. And that that's quite a bit of time to watch, to see various iterations of our church's life. OK, there are people there are people here that have been there, been here that entire time. And you also know and have seen some of those iterations. And I would say, as a pastor, that there was a time in our church's history where if we erred, okay, if we erred 
in emphasizing either gravity or gladness, okay, we had a tendency to sort of default toward the gravity aspect, okay? There was a time where that was the case. We tended to emphasize gravity over gladness. I don't think intentionally, it just kind of happened that way. But in recent years, I think we've emphasized more gladness and joy rather than than gravity. And I think that's what what's happened is that the unintended result of that is that we've lost some weight and gravity. I, I believe that. And, and both are necessary, both gladness and gravity. Thank you, dear brother. Appreciate your kindness. Thank you. And we need both gladness and gravity. Those are necessary features. But but here's the thing. As a human beings, we, we tend to sort of just end up defaulting one way or the other. And, and this should not be because worship is both vertical, as I said, and it's horizontal. And it's always bidirectional. When we're worshiping, we're always going up. And there's always communication toward to one another. So it's either Godward. If it's not, if it's not vertical, then it's not Godward. If it's not horizontal, then it's not congregational. But worship should be both Godward and congregational. But the tendency of the American church, so let's step out of here. We've been affected. We have been affected by the American church. So let's not remove ourselves. But the tendency of the American church is to emphasize the horizontal. And by horizontal, I don't mean biblically horizontal, like praying over one another and speaking songs over one another, speaking truth to one another. I think the tendency of the American church is a cheapening of that horizontal element, a cheapening of that. And and what I mean is a cheap, cavalier, funny, carefree, silly atmosphere. Just silly. Frankly, the American church needs to lay off the horizontal. It does. And it needs to become more fixated on the vertical. And I I just want to call us this morning as a church to examine ourselves on this matter. I, I think that we have work to do here. One hour a week is not too much to ask people to get serious about vertical, God-soaked worship. The, I mean, the whole world is screaming at us all the time to stay horizontal. Talk, talk, talk. Joke, joke, joke. Funny, funny, funny. And we have one hour or two hour, an hour and a half every week where we are called to just cling to God. Cling to Him. And everything in the service is pushing vertical. The, the welcome is vertical. There's a weight to it. The, the announcements are vertical. The music is vertical. The prayers are vertical. The scriptures are vertical. And here's the thing. You may be saying, well, what about the horizontal? What about the horizontal? Don't get there so fast. Just hear me. Because when hundreds of other people in this room are going vertical and there's a weight here, the horizontal will take care of itself. It will. But here's the thing. If you start on this level down here, you're not getting up there because this is where you've put the bar. If you put the bar here and other people begin to see that it begins to affect the horizontal affects me. It affects me when I see Carla Owens or Will Smith or or Esther Lynn or Jeff Cotiller around me singing energetically to the Lord. That affects me. That affects my heart. And sometimes I'll be standing there. And, and, and a hand will go up. And I ask myself, why did that hand just go up? Because my, because that's not where I'm at right now. Their heart is engaged in something that my heart's not. I'm, I'm over here thinking about what I'm going to do next week. I'm over here thinking about, or maybe I'm on my phone. Scrolling through something. Like, I'm in worship. Can we just put these things down in worship? Unless you're reading the Bible, I mean, read the Bible, feel free to do that. But I'm saying, what, I mean, but we just, we, we don't even think about it. We're just so, like, we've got to have this thing in our hands all the time. And just, like, this is not the time to be scrolling through Twitter and Facebook. God is here. So, I, I just, there's got to be a weight here that we feel, that we know, that we sense so the horizontal dimension is significant, but, uh, but I say that it's only significant because there's a vertical reality that's grounding the horizontal. Listen to this text. Let me just do some work here. So look on the, look on the screen here. Isaiah chapter 8, 11 through 14 says this. 
It says, for the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Now note this language and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. In other words, don't be don't be afraid, people of God. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. That is weird. That's weird language. Let him be your dread and he'll be your he'll be your he'll be your comfort. How does that work? How does that work? How does he say, do not fear? In other words, his thing here is the fear of the Lord is your sanctuary. He's your refuge. The idea is that we are a fearless people. We are fearless. Why? Because we fear God. That's the point. We see God as holy and big and wise and he's a consuming fire. And we know that people can't just willy-nilly approach God any old way they want. We know that they can't do that. And so there's an appropriate respect and weight about us. Because think about this. Just think about this. It took the slaughter of God's son for us to even be able to approach him. The slaughter of his son. I love the illustration that John Piper gives of his son Karsten. He says they were invited to a friend's house and his son Karsten was like four or five at this time. And they walk up and and the dad of that house opens the door and there's this massive German shepherd standing there. Karsten's down here on this level and he's like eyeball to eyeball with this German shepherd, ferocious dog. And he's scared and he looks at his dad and John's like, hey, is, is your dog safe? And he says, yeah, yeah, he's safe. And then John says to Karsten, hey, buddy, go out to the car and get dad's bag. I left it. And Karsten goes running out, excited as a little kid does. And the dog didn't like it. And the dog went, ooh, and it went after Karsten. And you know what? And you know what John Piper's friend said to him? He said, he said, hey, Karsten, hey, buddy, walk. He doesn't like it when you run from him. He doesn't like that. And the point is such a great point is that is that God doesn't like it when we run from him. Is that it, it put your better not run away from him, better hug him. Better put your arm around him and walk out with him. As Psalm 2:12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See all that language Fire, wrath, kindling, and then refuge. Kiss a son. Kiss a God of wrath. How does that work? See, the Bible won't let you hang out on extremes. It's going to leave you in in an area of tension. Kiss the son lest he crush you. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing language. And that's why when we come into this house, when we come into church, we respect God. So, so, so don't, don't misunderstand me, okay? This isn't Sinai. What, 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 what the atmosphere that we're going here is not, is not sulfur and brimstone. Okay? Because we're, we are, we are sons and not slaves, but we have respect and fear, the fear of a son, not the fear of a slave. But we have fear. Okay? So, so this isn't Sinai, but you know what? It's not a country club. Sit in the country club. This is God's place. Our father is a royal king and we respect him immensely. So there's warmth and there's respect. There's warmth of a son and there's respect of a servant. And out of that respect comes gladness and joy. Okay? So here's the thing that's so beautiful about this. The kind of gladness and joy that we're talking about here is not a juvenile thing. It's not a slapstick thing. It is... It's rooted in something big. So check out another verse, Psalm 43. Psalm 43, verse 3 says, Send out your light. Notice that language, and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your what kind of hill? Your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I'll go to your altar, the place of worship, 
to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God, my God. So you see that there's a holy hill, there's a holy station, there's an altar, there's light there, there's truth there, there's glory there, there's weight there, but he's my exceeding joy. He's my exceeding joy and I'll praise him with lyre. I'll praise him and he's not just God, he's my God. He's my God. So you see happiness there? What you don't see is levity. You don't see levity. You see happiness. You don't see humor and flippancy. You see serious joy. You don't see clownish behavior. You don't see yucking it up. You see life-changing delight in God's presence. So you see, see, here's the thing. Some some people just don't, they, they have a hard time resonating with this because they operate with only two categories. One is they, they, they equate happiness with just something that's chipper and funny, right? So when I'm happy, everything's chipper, funny, life's great. Or they equate seriousness with, ah, oh, it's boring. So serious is boring and, and, and happy is chipper. And it's wrong. Because there's a we media. There's a third way. There's another approach. And it's serious joy. It's joyful respect. It's reverential exaltation. It's a mixture of weight and, and, and bliss. So that's what we're going for. So my, my, my encouragement for us as a church is I, I, I want us desperately when we are here on Sunday mornings gathering, I want there to be a, the, feel, the filial sonship of God enjoyed and the warmth of his presence felt and the exuberation and the excitement of joy that yes causes you to lift your hands and clap your hands and shout for joy but i want it to come from a weight of glory that respects the son of god for who he is and i'm just calling us as a church calling us as a church to please please prepare your heart before you come to worship coming in 15 20 minutes late to the singing Sitting down, sort of checked out emotionally, going through Facebook. That is not right. God is here. Church, please. See, we can't, why should we expect God to move and bless us as a church if our attitude is cavalier toward Him? I want to see the glory of God. But how could we pray, Lord, show us your glory? But then with our actions, we're just, we're just not there. Let's bring those things together. So that's the glory of the Son of God. Then we see the power of the Son of God in verses 14 through 23. So this is awesome. The, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, have just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, They're affected by that. Their life is changed. They've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And right after this euphoric experience, they find themselves in an utterly wicked and vile scene. The focus is on a demon-possessed boy... And beside him is this crowd of, of thrill seekers. Man, they're having a big time out there. And they're arguing with the disciples and they're mocking the disciples because the disciples obviously they failed. The nine other disciples down there failed in casting out a demon out of a, out of a boy. So they're the Pharisees, the scribes, the thrill seekers are out there mocking the disciples. And in the midst of all this, you have a dad who's totally devastated. I got a kid. I got a son who's so messed up. He's so messed up. And, I've, and I, Jesus, I went to your disciples. They couldn't do anything for him. And I'm pleading with you, Jesus. Can you do something to help my son? In verse 14, he does what men don't do. He kneels before another man and he begs him for mercy. That's just not in the male psyche. But here he is, falls down in front of Jesus and says, Jesus, please have mercy on my son. This man is desperate. He begs Jesus. Now think about that request to show mercy. To show mercy in the Bible isn't to kind of feel compassion in your heart. Oh, I feel really bad for your son. Thanks for telling me about that. You know, I feel really bad for him. No, mercy, to have mercy in the Bible is just that. It's to have it. It's to do it. It's allowing that compassion to move you to action so that you actually do something to alleviate the suffering. Mercy is not a feeling. It's an action. It steps in. It goes to work. And when God shows mercy, he's not just feeling pity on us. His pity moves him to action. 
And that's why we're saved. Because God's compassion moved into action for us. He works to relieve it. And praise God for that. So this father falls on his knees and begins to describe his son's affliction. In verse 15, we read that, 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 this, that this boy is an epileptic. Not only that, but Mark adds, the Gospel of Mark, that his ep- epilepsy, this is interesting, is caused by a demon. So it's demonic epilepsy. So if you don't, just, just parenthetically here, if you don't have a category for, for physical illness coming from a demon, then you should. Because here it is. Okay. Now that's not to say that obviously every physical illness is a result of demonic activity. Clearly. Okay. We can all be grateful for that. But it is to say that you better have a category for that because that does happen. All right. And, and this is not a mild case of epilepsy. This is a sick kid. Mark tells us that the boy could not speak or hear. Matthew says that he would often fall into both fire and water. So this is not strictly a physical problem. Mark says that he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, the spirit, he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Luke says that the demon throws him down. Mark says he convulses, wallows in the dirt, and foams at the mouth. And then, to make matters worse, Mark adds that the demon was foul and unclean. Which means that the boy would have been lewd and licentious. And probably completely out of control. So you got a young boy who's just crazy. He's crazy. Throwing himself in fire. Throwing himself in water. And and what we see here is a vivid, vivid, vivid picture of sin. Let me just pause here and ask you a, 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 a question. Let's pause the scene. And let's just ask this. How do people get demons in them like that? How does that happen? Well, there's probably some there's probably some things at play. But one the thing I want to point I want to make this morning is you really don't have to do all that much. You just have to be a non-Christian. You know why? Because if you are a non-Christian, you're not protected by Jesus, by his blood, by his saving grace. You're completely open and susceptible to whatever the devil wants to do to you. He's completely open. Right? Because you're either controlled by the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan, or by the Savior, which is Jesus. And so therefore, if you are in that world, you are totally susceptible to whatever the devil wants to do to you. We have people that can come up here right now and tell you about the times that they have been afflicted and absolutely tormented by demonic expressions. I just talked to a guy a couple of months ago, and his story is unreal, just absolutely unreal. And I'm telling you, if we if we brought him up here right now, he could talk for five minutes, and you'd just be blown away. This this is the kind of stuff. It is serious. It is so serious. And the really scary thing is that you don't have any ability to resist that if you're a non-Christian. The demonic realm rules you. You're a slave. Just let me ask this question: Can you stop your own sin? Can you stop it? Can you stop? Seriously, can you stop your own sin? And you may say, I've got willpower and on and on and on and on. But you know what? You can't stop it. And you know, you know in your heart you can't stop it. So if you're not a Christian, let me just appeal to your own self-interest. Is it not better for you to be reconciled to God? Because only in Christ can we find peace and safety and protection. And there's big protection in Jesus. First John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And, awesome phrase, the evil one does not touch him. That's huge. That is not true about a non-Christian. Which is not true. Verse 16. So, verse 16 goes on. He says that Jesus, I, I brought him to your disciples, the man says, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, here's Jesus' response. He rebukes them, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. This is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Because we see the spiritual total ineffectiveness of the disciples. They have no power. Something is wrong because in Matthew 10.1, this is dead wrong. In Matthew 10.1, we read that Jesus gave them power over unclean spirits. What happened? 
He gave them power to cast out every disease and every affliction. And then in chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus says, heal the sick, command, raise the dead, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So you have the power to do so. So you have the command to do so. What's wrong? What's your excuse? What's going on? So the disciples have been given the authority, the power to do so that they were doing it. And we even know they were doing it. Mark 6, 13 says they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They healed them. That's what it says. Guys, read the Bible carefully. Read it exegetically. Listen, here, Father pleads with the disciples to do it. He pleads with them to do what Jesus gave them power to do. And they can't do it. Jesus gave them the power and the command to do so. And he pleads with them to do it. And they can't do it. Why? Because something is missing. What is missing? Faith. Faith. They lost sight of Christ. They did not appropriate his power and help through prayer. So this man approaches Jesus instead. And he says, your disciples are no help. And when Jesus hears this, he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to bear with you? How long? You can feel the emotion in Jesus. How long? You can feel his holy irritation. How long? And Jesus rebukes his disciples for their faithlessness. And note this. Jesus may be angry, but he's never unkind. He may be displeased, but it doesn't keep him from showing compassion. Instead, he says, bring the boy to me. And he heals the boy. He rebukes the demon and it's over. The child is cured. And just like that, he can speak, he can hear, he can think. No more convulsions, no more foaming at the mouth. And by the way, I love this. Luke adds a footnote. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. It's amazing. Now, this should be an encouragement for parents to bring their children before Christ. If your children are still under the grip of the devil, Jesus is able to deliver them. Right? Right? So, and don't just bring them to Christ in prayer. Bring Christ to them through the word. God brought home to the, God's word brought home to the heart of a sinner will ruin Satan's power. Ruin it. So we see that Christ endures our unbelief and he meets our deepest needs, but with that, we see the cause for the disciples' spiritual ineffectiveness. We can't know for sure what the real, the ultimate cause is, but due to the previous scene, it's possible that they've concluded that divine power was a given for them, right? Even without reliance on God, and pride may have played a role. So in Luke 10, they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But we also know this from the text. Verse 19 says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. That's what he says. And then Mark adds these words. This kind cannot come out only by this kind can only come out by prayer. So when Jesus diagnoses the problem, he tells them that two things are at play of their ineffectiveness. One, a lack of faith and two, a lack of prayer. That's very simple. Lack of faith, lack of prayer. So let's start with faith and make some application. It seems that these disciples had begun to approach ministry in a very mechanical way. They had become dependent on their own strength instead of God's power. They didn't rely upon God. Now, the point here isn't that we need more faith merely, but it's that we need to be fixed on the object of our faith. If we want our faith to increase, we must keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the source of our power. A little bit of faith in a great God will accomplish much. It's In short, nothing is impossible for people who rely on the power of God to accomplish the will of God. Nothing is impossible. It may sound goofy and like a Christian cliche to say faith can move mountains. But guess what? It's in the Bible. Right here. Verse 20, certainly there are limitations. We're not omnipotent. We are not God. Jesus is not saying that our faith guarantees that God will do whatever we want. But you know what, folks? We overcorrect. We read this and we think about the sovereignty of God and we act like this isn't really a promise. We strip it of its value, but it is. The reality is many things are not accomplished because of a lack of faith in our hearts. Faith in what? 
faith in, let's start here, the goodness and greatness of God. It's a confident trust that God is good and that his heart delights in saving and healing his people and rescuing and delivering his people. It's taking Jesus for his word. In Luke eleven thirteen, it says, If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it's a confident trust that God is willing to give his spirit and power and that he is not limited by anything outside of himself. It's a deep genuine, confident faith that God will, will accomplish great things if we will simply exercise faith. Okay, let me give you some biblical examples. It was faith in God's power that caused Caleb to look at the land of Canaan with all of its giants in Numbers 13 and say, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Who says that in the face of giants? Come on. Daniel 3.17, it it was faith in in God's protection that allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to stand on the edge of a fiery furnace and say, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will rescue us, O king, from your power as well. Who says that in front of a fiery furnace? It was faith in God's word that enabled Daniel to survive the lion's den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and he was not hurt in any way. Why? Because he believed God. Oh, for faith like this. There's so much more that can be done through our church in our own lives, but we simply don't believe God will do it. That's the issue. So we spend our time and our effort on things that we think we can do in our own strength. Got to pad my finances. Got to work on my 401k. Got to work on my retirement. Got to get all these things in line because, you know what, I got to take care of myself because God's not going to take care of me because ultimately I'm the one that takes care of my life. And all that's complete wickedness. There's no faith in that. There's no faith in working on your 401k. Do it, but there's no faith in that. So here's what we do. Usually if we can't see a way, we don't attempt it. But that's not the life of faith. Faith says, faith, Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So back in verse 19, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus teaches them a great lesson because of your little faith. You had weak faith. There are degrees of faith. Small faith yields small results. Large faith yields large results. Don't eliminate that from your theology. Jesus teaches this principle four other times in the gospel of Matthew. He does. So... What do we do, right, when our faith is weak? When we look away from ourselves, when we fix our eyes, what we do is we we need to look away from ourselves. We need to fix our eyes on God. The issue, here's the thing, here's the issue. The issue is never the size of your challenge or the size of your strength. The issue is always the size of your God. Focus on him and your faith will increase. Practically, here's, here's 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 a real pressing question. What do we do when we're praying for healing and it doesn't come or we say, God, I just want to see with my own eyes sometime. I just want to see God with my own eyes. Somebody healed. I want to see something happen. I want to see a demonstration of your power. That's walking by sight. But still in your heart, you're saying, I want to see it. But sometimes God is gracious. He is. And sometimes we see an inbreaking of his healing in this age And it's a miraculous demonstration. So as we close, I want to play a video, just a couple of minutes, of a guy who shares a testimony. His name is Dwayne. He's a pastor. He was a pastor in Texas. He got a virus that attacked his vocal cords. And this virus uh, was, was very aggressive. It's like it gave him laryngitis. And over the next three years, he saw 63 specialists, uh, over 200 doctors, um, he felt like he had a constant case of laryngitis, pressure in his throat. He ended up having to retire. He couldn't preach anymore, couldn't teach. He lost his voice. He moved to Houston. They joined a large Baptist church um, while he was attending this Sunday school class. This guy's very rough to hear, to talk. I mean, it was even just abrasive to hear him talk. And the normal teacher for that class was sick. And they said, hey, Dwayne, you've been a pastor. Is there any way we can put a mic on you that's loud enough right on your lips or something where people can hear you? We just need a teacher for the class. It was a Southern Baptist curriculum. It was like Gospel Project. The class just happened to be on Psalm 103. Everybody else was teaching on it in America. Same text. 
He gets up there. They put a microphone on him. He teaches. And he gives a really rock-solid theology of healing from Psalm 103. Rock-solid. Faithful, faithful word. And I listened to two hours of his testimony. And he's, and he's asking this question, what do we do when the Bible says he heals us of our diseases, but it doesn't happen? What do we do? I want you to listen. I believe God still heals. That hasn't ended. That is not over. Now you have to be careful on how you do this. Because there are folks who carry things to an excess and it becomes a show. And God has never intended that that be what it is. God heals in his sovereign will. I don't know why God does things that he does. But I know that he does. And the only thing he requires of me is to allow him to be God and me to be me and let it be. To say that... Every single person will always be healed because Jesus died on the cross is a misinterpretation of Scripture. Not true. Won't work. Isaiah 53 doesn't talk about physical healing. I'm sorry. That's just not the context. And to impress that there causes a misinterpretation of Scripture. That's wrong. On the other hand, to say that, since we don't have anything after the book of Acts, that miracles ended at the book of Acts and they never happen again, is equally as wrong. Because you have put God in a box both ways. And he doesn't want to be in the box. So, the psalmist says, I'm excited. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One of his benefits is he heals all of my diseases. And then in verse 4 he says, and he redeems my life from the pit. Now, I like that verse just a whole lot. I have had, and you have had in times past, pit experiences. We've both had, we've all had times when our life seemed to be in a pit, in a grave. And we didn't have an answer for the pit we find ourselves in. And I don't understand this right now. I'm been overwhelmed at the moment I'm not quite sure what to say or do <laughs> I'm uh, Sounds funny to say a loss for words. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I <laughs> He redeems my life from the pit. <laughs> And crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things. So that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is abounding in love. The Lord will not accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's mercy. Or repay us according to our iniquities. That's mercy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, 
so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. That's isn't God good? Isn't he good? It's just a that's a simple illustration of a moment when God chose to step in and intervene and heal a man. And while he's preaching, teaching on healing. Amazing. And that kind of stuff happens. And God does that. And he's willing to do that. But it comes, folks, it comes when we have an increased faith and when we have more intensified prayer. And here's how I want to end for our church. I want to end this way. Mark 9, Jesus says, this kind only comes out through prayer. And when he says that, what does he mean? He mean, does he mean that we should pray to God and ask him to drive out the demon? Or does he mean that we should pray to God for wisdom and renewed confidence in the suffering of Christ and the atoning death and the power of his resurrection? That here it is, that we may engage a dark world and rebuke such a thing in his name. And I think it's the latter. Mark focuses on the need for prayer because it demonstrates that divine power, divine power is not under human control. So I don't get to just walk around and just, and just do stuff. Because it prayer demonstrates that if anything's going to happen, it's going to become as a result of his power, not me, not me. And so there's prayer and reliance and trust on God. And my question to you, church, is this. Are you willing to pray? Are we willing to pray? And how many hours will we stay on our knees and how persistent are we willing to be in prayer? And I think the answer is that it depends on our faith and confidence in God. William Henderson says, faith the size of a mustard seed is the kind of faith, is, is a kind of trust that does not give up in despair when its efforts do not meet with immediate success. It maintains its uninterrupted and vital contact with God and therefore continues to pray fervently, knowing that God at his own time and in his own way will bestow the blessing. So what's the solution to little faith? It's prayer. It's prayer. Persistent prayer and dependence upon God. James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then Jesus ends one of his teachings by saying this. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I just asked that question to myself this week and of our church. When the Son of Man looks at Heritage Baptist Church, will he find faith? And you make up this church. My question is, will he find, does he find faith in your heart? And, and, and what are the mountains, so to speak, that our church needs to move by God's grace? Can we? See, I'm convinced. I'm just totally convinced. We don't experience the weight of God's glory, the fullness of his, of his, of, of his rewards, of his blessings, in part because we don't pursue him like we should. That, that's the issue, is that we have got, if we want to see some breakthrough, some healing, some conversion, we have to have at least a mustard seed faith. And we have to be seeking him in prayer. And so I was just thinking, what are, what are the kind of things we should be praying for as a church? Number one, I think we should be praying that God would make us a praying church. Isn't that a good place to start? Number two, that God would give us vital community here. Number three, a spirit-anointed church that's deeply Godward in its focus. Number four, a culture of spontaneous worship where people just want to get together and worship. A culture of discipleship where people are engaging one another in Christ and helping each other grow. Whole-scale, church-wide renewal and revival. A breakthrough on Fifth Street. Something to happen down there. Church planting. Uh, uh, repentant in God entranced children and youth a restored and revived marriages in our church how about this inexplicable church growth that comes as a result of conversions not just people transferring from other churches that comes when the power of God moves but hear me here here's the thing God's willing to do all of that all of that he's willing to do that but it will only come through prayer and it has to start on an individual level when each member prioritizes the secret place of prayer. Listen, we are where we are as a church because this is where we've chosen to be. This is where we've chosen to be. But we can be in a different place. And that starts and continues with prayer. Are we willing, my question to you is, are we willing to pay the price? And do we want God that bad? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, how it stretches us.
We're thankful for the promises of it. We're thankful for the reward of it. We're thankful for the... Just, it's beautiful. But we want to be affected. We want that transcendence, that weight of glory, that reverential fear of a son, that warmth, that respect of a son. We want that flavor about us. And we want that to drive us to prayer, and we want that prayer to drive us to deeper faith, and we want that faith to be rewarded, God, yes, in in a move of God among us, and a move of God in our city, and a move of God among among our children, and a move of God among our youth, and our marriages, and our church, and the ministries of it, Lord. We don't want to just go through the motions. We want to be a church that is God-entranced, that is God-soaked, that is God-besotted. I beg you, O oh God, we beg you together, Lord, to move us in that direction. But God, you will take a, it will take a work of your spirit. But we invite that spirit. We invite you, Spirit of God, to move on us in that way. We pray all these things in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen.